Hi, and welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. Thanks for joining us uh, this week as we continue the Glam Conversation. For those of you who still don't know GLAM, it's a great little acronym that groups together all of our cultural institutions that have been charged with preserving our cultural heritage and identities, and it stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. And each week we delve into Sydney's history and go behind the scenes of some of these amazing cultural institutions. This week on the show we're in for a real treat. Joining us today is Julia Mant. She is Archives and Records Manager at the National Institute of Dramatic Art, that's NIDA for those of you in the know. She's been working in educational archives since 1999 and Julia is also the president of the Australian Society of Archivists. So Julia, literally you're putting the A in glam. Welcome. Thank you. What is Julia? What Maybe begin by telling us what the Australian Society of Archivists is and what it does. So the ASA for short, ASA. Australian Society of Archivists, is uh, the peak professional body for archivists and the archival profession in Australia. It uh, was founded in 1975 and uh, so we're a little over 40 years old. We, we do a range of things from advocacy, education, training, you know, sort of e-learning and setting standards, looking after our members. So there's okay. a range of things like that. So maybe we need to back it up a little bit more and say, tell me what an archivist is and why you became one. <laughs> well, that's right. So how did I get, how did I, most, a lot of people fall into archiving, it has <laughs> to be You're playing said. in dusty boxes I've as a often, child. Yeah, well, no, that's right. So uh, I've often thought that there'd be a very useful course called the accidental archivist because that is how many people find themselves being that. Um, some people come to it through an interest in the past, through history. Others come to it because they've been, they were interested in information studies and, and the qualifications are postgraduate qualifications and they effectively these days are master of information studies or information science. And, and within that streams for archiving and record keeping. So uh, I was working at an organisation called Tramby Aboriginal College in Glebe and they needed somebody to set up their archives. Uh, and that's how I came into it. And then I thought, ah, this is perfect because it combines an interest in the past, which I did have. I have a, um, a history undergraduate degree and archiving also allows you to explore, uh, to, to tell stories, to create connections, to reach out to people. So there's, there's that element. So it can be actually really valuable and there's these you know, very special relationships you have with individuals and communities who need to access records and so it can be very fulfilling as a career. You can work in a wide variety of places so the sector includes government and uh, public institutions often because there is, I mean, well, the reason why you have that is that there's a legislative need to retain archives but it also includes the not-for-profit sector and universities, colleges, Schools, there's a big rise in private schools that have archives. There are, you know, places like the ABC. There are places like NIDA that decide to have an archive. So there's a, there's a wide variety of places that you can work in. So I guess it's what, it, having found myself as an archivist and then having undertaken the training to be qualified and a professional archivist, that's why the career has, um, you know, I've stayed with it and really uh, enjoyed it very much. There's a terrific quote by the retired archivist, Michael Piggott, who said, everything is useful, you can't predict the uses and you can't keep everything, which is a you know, a classic paradox of yeah. archiving. Will that always present, do you think, for archivists? You know, we don't know what we're going to need them for. We can't keep everything, and yet they might be needed. So you definitely can't keep everything, and I think um, I mean, this is never so more true of the, of the digital world that we live in. So a lot of people still feel that archives are physical 
records. In fact, increasingly, archivists are dealing with the digital space. Uh, so therefore, the need to assess, to appraise, would be the formal archival term, what you're retaining mm. is ever more important mm. because, you know, you could, you know, a lot of, like you often have these battles with IT, right, classically, because they'll just keep everything, big data, keep it all. And, you know, there's often this idea that we've turned in from filers, we've turned into searchers. So this idea that we can just search for what we need. But that in itself isn't actually giving you good evidence. You might find it. So if you can find it, is it actually good evidence? And it's that evidential nature of what you're retaining that is the critical feature of being an archivist. Mm. So you're making sure that what's created can be understood. You understand the context in which it was created. You understand the purpose for why it was created, which might be very different for the use to which it's being put later. Mm. But you have to understand the wider relationships around the document. Mm. So just finding something in itself Mm. isn't archiving. So the idea of keeping everything is sometimes attractive, particularly in the digital sphere. Just keep it all and we'll find it. But the more you keep, the more you can't find. And the mm. more you can't find, the more, the less value that it, it presents gives society. So it is better to actually say, well, what do we need? And so archivists have former ways of doing that. And that's part of the training of being an archivist. You can't just come in and say, uh, oh, I think I like that and we'll keep that. Mm. Um, or that looks pretty. I'll keep that. It needs to be, there has to be some sort of strategy involved. You must have some sort of strategy behind that. Now, that can vary. So within the um, uh, state or commonwealth agencies, there are what we call disposal authorities or schedules for retention and disposal. And I often say, people often, uh, like at the current workplace, they, they sort of say, oh, well, why do you need a shredding bin at the archives? Oh, I definitely need a <laughs> shredding bin at the archives. Do you know? <laughs> Getting rid of stuff is, is as important as keeping it because then you can better value what you've retained. So that's, you know, but but it's dangerous to say, I'll just do that and leave it up for me to make that decision. Oh. Even within a private organisation, I need to have some assessment. I need to keep records for business reasons. There might be business purposes that might keep something at NIDA for longer than perhaps uh, the state agency might recommend, you know, if I was comparing against a, an authority. And then I might say, well, uh, there are legal requirements. Obviously, there are, uh, even if we're not under state records legislation, which public agencies are, and there are requirements for what you keep under that, I might keep things for, I've got to keep things for work health and safety purposes. I've got to keep things for financial reasons. I've got to keep things for ch- working with children. You know, so there's a whole range of legal reasons which dictate what you keep. Mm. And then, of course, there might be just historical reasons. And so you know and you bring to bear some understanding of society and what it mm. needs and, and that idea that, you know, at some point individuals, organisations and society may need these records And so that might be the same as business and legal requirements, but it also might be beyond that, and that's often what's called that fourth dimension of record-keeping. And so archivists like to think in a continuum. The concept of a life cycle that, you know, here's the record and then finally it ends up in the archives and then the archivist decides what to keep. It doesn't work with a digital environment. It's too dangerous. You must, before you've even created the record, you need to know why. Mm. and for how long that record is going to be kept. In that sense, I mean, you've really just given us an articulation of the 
problem of living in the digital age, right? We all encounter that flood of information all the time. We're all selecting all the time. We may mm. not think of ourselves as doing mm. that. I mean, has the digital brought to the archives community a kind of period of reassessment? Are you rethinking your methods? We've had to, definitely. And we've had to relook at the skills and still relooking at those skills. Um, it's, it's something that we've been dealing with now for 30 years, really, nearly 40 years, that you can have electronic records and we don't say electronic records anymore, by the way. It's all digital now. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite funny. 20 years ago, you'd gone to a conference and it'll be electronic records. Now it's all digital. <laughs> digital archives, digital archives. But it is actually about reassessing both what we do, but also the skills that archivists need to go out into the workplace. Mm. I still think that the tenets of um, the Australian series system, which is uh, really the theoretical positioning that underpins what archivists do, is perfectly designed to cope with that digital world. And we are seeing more and more of engagement from the United States and European archives, which operate under a different system of arrangement, that we're able to tackle the digital sphere much better because of those theories that underpin the profession here in Australia. Uh, But nevertheless, it's constantly you're having to engage. There are many people who come to archiving and they still love the idea of being next to the physical. And there is something terribly attractive about seeing, you know, leather-bound registers with copper plate handwriting, increasingly a rare thing for people to be able to even read or translate. And there is that, what we call the look and feel, um, and, and that that's the thing that, uh, that brings people in. It's why photographs are often so an excellent way into a community so that if, as an archivist, you're trying to engage with the community, um, bringing photos and and those connections because they speak to people, they're very real. Whereas sometimes a a dry, uh, a letter, a dry letter from, you know, to the Prime Minister about this matter might seem ho-hum or a letter that documents an arrival on a ship, except, of course, if that has absolute intrinsic meaning and gives you some Mm. sort of uh, connection to a person in the past or an event that happened, Mm. in which case it's an incredibly emotional thing, that piece of paper. But people often have to have that connection to understand the importance of it. I remember many years ago there was actually, I used to work at the University of Sydney in the archives there, and then somebody wrote a a book uh, and, and we featured it at the archives, featured in the book, and the idea was that there was no emotion in archives. And yet, in fact, I, this is terribly wrong because archives are all about emotion. It might seem sometimes like we're not. And sometimes when you're faced with the digital sphere, it just seems it's bytes, you know, it's data that's out there. But the, the challenge is to recreate those emotional connections in the digital world. Sometimes the temptation is to do that all through just digitisation. It's about digitising the past and making it out there. And that is part of what archivists have to do. So it's to make, to bring a new audience in to old records. And that's one of the connections that we have with the glam sector. And we collaborate very much so on, on bringing the past through digital images or connections, stories that are told. But the other is actually what we call born digital records, 
And the, that's the great challenge. And, and you need technical skills. You need to be able to engage with databases. You need to understand the flow of data. And that, again, it sort of sounds like the other boring part of archiving when it's actually, again, really very engaging. Not everyone is systems-minded who comes to the profession. And so that can often be the challenge, building the skill set when people are attracted to the physical versus perhaps new professionals who come in with really great system skills and IT skills and needing to bring that to those older forms of what archiving means. So bridging that divide Mm. is really key and I guess that's the challenge. I think the archival profession is perfectly placed to be able to tackle the digital world because I said I think it has the theoretical underpinnings and people are always very flexible and adaptable and and dealing with the new but that, that's the challenge is to, to build the professionals with the skills to be able to do that mm. and to let the people that you work with understand that that's what you can bring. Do you find your archiving profession bleeds into everyday life? Like I noticed when my dad died many years ago, um, my mum went through and just chucked everything. And as a historian, I was completely shocked. I was like, no, you've got to keep it. These are records. You must. And she was like, nope. And it was absolutely about that emotional connection to things that you know I wanted every trace remembered and kept and she just wanted to move on and wasn't interested in his uh, teaching notes from you know uh, year 12 class or whatever it was uh, from 40 years earlier. It's the challenge definitely and we talked about it a little bit before how do you decide if if everything has to be kept but then actually you can't keep everything. Yeah. So how do you do that and yes we do face it in our personal lives and um, perhaps there's a bit of the closet hoarder in an archivist, I don't (laughs) know. But it is very much about getting rid of things in order to, to better see what's been appraised to be of value which doesn't It's not to say that archivists get it right every time, but it isn't the archivist per se deciding it. It must be in consultation with the particular sector that you're in. Have you had any examples of an ethical dilemma that you can remember and and explain to us? Well, one, I mean, if you think about NIDA, for instance, I mean, we have this wonderful photographic archive. It's very much what I've done. It is both physical and digital. one of the key things I've done since I've been there is is bringing a digital asset management system in to tackle the 10 years' worth of, of images that we have audiovisual. We have over 300,000 analogue images. You know, that's 300,000 digital, 300,000 analogue. That's a lot of content that's there. The interesting thing, though, is that the people in the images were, for the most part, students. So you've got this covenant there. They're studying. Many of them have gone on to be, as we know, famous actors and or designers or other technicians within the theatre crafts. Can we use those images of students for our own purposes? We absolutely have to keep them. They've been deemed to be items of significance, of national significance, because, of course, they document post-World War II theatre history. But how does NIDA, faced with, you know, here's a young Mel Gibson, take a photo shot taken of him in rehearsals in the the late 70s or uh, in a production that wasn't... A public production, and even then, uh, can we just use that image? Same with Kate Blanchett, same with uh, Sarah Snook. Are they happy for us to use the images just because they're taken? How do we balance the needs, the, the trust that the student must have when they come to a higher education institution versus the need of the of a cultural history? So we keep them. Maybe for the moment they're not accessible, but at some point they will be. Or 
as you might happen very often with um, certainly this is the case with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and it's the same with I would say uh, this particular cohort you engage in dialogue so if you want to use a photo of people and they're still alive you engage and you correspond with them and you take the time to find out if they're happy for that photo to be used I mean that's that that question of trust seems so key to thinking about how our public institutions you know work generally let me just pick you up on that then Tamsin because trust and technology is key (coughs) and I really believe that now there was some years ago a project done by Monash University um, through the informatics school there looking particularly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the question of trust but I would say that I, I often argue that even in, at NIDA. So part of my job is being the archivist there, but I'm also the records manager, which means that it's about en- engaging car- uh, people with current record keeping. Not the most glamorous of jobs. But anyway, that's okay because I always talk about they have to feel trust in the technology in order to use it mm. in their everyday. And then you also have to engage them in the fact that there will be stakeholders down mm. the process, that you know, down the path that sort of will, will need these records. But if they don't trust the technology, they won't use it. Mm. Uh, similarly with the work that Monash did with Aboriginal communities looking at... Um, building digital archives, uh, there has to be a trusted person there. It has to be seen to be relevant to that community. So if, those, if that technology doesn't, isn't trusted by the people who are both creating it, people who are managing it and the people who are using it, mm. it will not deliver. There's also a question of access, isn't there? I mean, I remember interviewing um, an Aboriginal woman in the Kimberley a few years ago and she was talking about finding her parents' records who, and they had been removed. Uh, and she said, it's 2,000 kilometres for me to go and access my parents' files. And in a place like Australia where there are issues of distance and also um, presumably literacy and English as a second language, that access is another element, I suppose, of the ethical responsibility of archives. That's right, and sometimes people feel that I mean, so that, you know, there's the whole concept of the archivist as gatekeeper, and and that it must be in in a centralised, managed place. And there are some, of course, key advantages for that to be. But then, delivering to local communities, mm. uh, particularly where there are regional, remote issues, because they're there, you know, it's their there. property as well. That's right, and so obviously, digital archives are a, a perfect way to enable that access. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Glam City. That's all one word. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. We've been talking about trust and archives and that brings us, I think, to the campaign you're running at NWA. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Every so often in a government department or in a university as well, someone has an idea, why don't we make the archives? Why doesn't it become part of the library? This is a bad idea. (laughs) Why is this a bad idea? This is a bad idea. (laughs) Take us through it. Take us through it. So the reason is is that archives and libraries separated in the 1950s and there were real needs behind that and part of it was understanding the distinct nature of the the archival profession and what it can offer that's separate to the librarians, uh, the profession of the library. Both are highly valuable and both offer um, specialist skills 
to their communities. And by nature, the libraries is often a larger profession uh, and an institution is often larger. So in the case of that you mentioned in the case of WA, the State Records Office is a small agency that came to be in the wake of the uh, Commission of Inquiry into the Royal Commission of WA, what they call WA Inc. in, in Western Australia. And there were failures of record keeping. And at the time, the archives were sitting within the library and it was seen that if you had an independent archives with an independent commission that oversaw the activities of it, you would actually get improved compliance. Is, and this, a- is this like... Um, relating to freedom of information and the public's access to know what goes on behind the doors of government? That's right. Well, they all stem from having good records. If you don't have those good records, and this is this this idea of the continuum, it's not just the archives being things that are no longer needed, Mm. but the archives is affecting what's made as well as what's managed and used. And so that concept of the record-keeping profession of which the archivist can affect both at the start and at the end Mm. of it. And so the idea of independence from the library, why? Because, I mean, libraries are wonderful and obviously the State Library of WA is, you know, a very important cultural institution there as well. And it's not at all. I mean, when when we run these campaigns about an independent archives, which we did successfully in South Australia a couple of years ago and have happened at at other times and uh, within, within other sectors as well. But the the idea behind it is really to, to advocate to say you can have both and that to recognise the professional skills of both sectors, but also the critical importance about independence is that the, the archives must be able to report directly to, to government, to the people uh, who are ultimately there for the trust of the public and the decisions that they're made. And if you're bound up within a library who's the provisions of a library are about public access, they're about you know, collections. It's not the same theory of arrangement, it's not the same. We manage access. Mm. Of course you can do anything with systems, but you get a much better result if you have a, an independent, supported archives. If the government isn't seen to be supporting the state records authority of, of any state, then where is the imperative for public servants and ministers mm. to toe the line? Does that come back to um, that quote from Michael Pickett at the beginning that, you know, we need to collect but we don't know what it's used for, its use will be in the future? Well, you document... So in, in government agencies, you are docu- the records are documenting the evidence of what happened. Hmm. Now, if I write to you a, a correspondence, at the point in time it may not seem it's just correspondence between two people... That letter may come to have great significance down mm. the path as events happen. Well, I should hope so, you know, if you're corresponding to me, that That's it will. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. At some point, someone may want to write a history, a biography of you, and they're interested yeah. in their engagement. You know, but <laughs> it, it, you can see within, obviously, for with, with regards to public accountability and government agencies. Yeah. But if you don't have that, if the public can't have trust in what the government's doing, and in 20 or 30 years' time, those records are made available for, uh, for the ministers and depart- public servants to be accountable to the public. If those records aren't there, mm. as they aren't, haven't been managed well, they haven't been created in the first place, they haven't been managed well, so they're not discoverable, mm. and then how do you use them? How are they, you know? So without that mm. compliance and accountability being understood to be a key component of what an archivist does or what archives authorities mm. provide, uh, then who is watching. Mm. I mean, you're almost saying something, I don't know, is this a misreading of what you've just said, that if, if we distrust the government for various reasons because, for example, WA Inc., and we can't even trust the records that then enable us to hold our agencies to account. 
So, well, absence of records tells you a story as well. Right. Oops. And poor record keeping also tells you a story. Mm. So you might have something, but it doesn't tell you what you're expecting to the see. The silences reveal something. The silences reveal, exactly, yeah. which is not a reason not to have something. Yeah, But it is, uh, you know, very often you don't have mm. what you want, you're looking for, and that tells you as much about a particular mm. situation. Yeah, ideally, there is the record of what has happened, a record of decision-making. Every day I create records that document what I do. Now, at some point, they might be assessed as low-risk low retention and they're not retained, yeah, and that's fine. Or they might be low risk but they're things that are identified as needing to be be kept. Uh, So correspondence, decisions of government, records of cabinet, all these things are important record keeping. And, of course, they will happen. Some people say, well, they're going to happen whether or not the State Records Authority reports to the librarian or reports to the minister. But you can see, if, you, if you're not seen to be supported by government and not seen as a, a key aspect of public accountability aligned with freedom of information laws, aligned with um, the ombudsman, aligned with those sort of open government legislation, so the sort of administrative laws, then if you're not supported, you don't have. You don't want to be all stick and no carrot. But the carrot, of course, is that you actually can deliver. Oh. At some point, the public will have faith. It's another element of faith in what you do. So the campaign in WA is just about you know saying that the decision to move the State Records Authority into the library, as it, from a reporting aim, while they would say it's a merely an administrative change, we say that these things are really important. They demonstrate to public servants that what they do is not as important as mm. uh, it w- we would like it to be. What can people do to support that campaign? Well, there is, if you go to our website, um, archivist.org.au, we have an advocacy page and there's a campaign page there. There's a petition that can be signed. It does affect users in the end. When we ran a campaign in South Australia a couple of years ago, which was very successful and did lead to the retention of the library and the archives being separate um, authorities, then, you know, very much the support we had behind that was from the public who are users of archives. And that includes historians, public historians. Get out there, team. Yeah, get out there. <laughs> uh, but uh, also just, you know, genealogists, all sorts of people are affected by this. So, And again, it's not against libraries because libraries and archives work very well together, but it is about not converging. It's, it's collaboration. Mm. And in your role in NIDA, which sounds like a fantastically interesting position, uh, what are the sorts of things that you keep? And can you give us a sense of some of the weirdest, most interesting items that a dramatic institute would be storing down in the bowels of their, below the, behind the stage, you know, behind the velvet red curtain? The, um, that's right. So, so full kudos to NIDA for having an archives. Uh, obviously, they are obliged to keep records under various legislation and and keeping records is perhaps not quite the same as having an archives and an archives is not just a repository but it's a a whole system of people systems places you know software ones and zeros that's what i'm getting ones and zeros no 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 (laughs) and onesies and And onesies onesies. (laughs) well there's a few yeah in neither that's an interesting thing would there be a onesie in the the costume archive yeah ones and zeros and onesies Gift to you, the digital and the costume. (laughs) Maybe we'll do that for NIDA's 60th, which is coming up in in 2019. uh, So the in-house, it is an in-house archives to some extent, and so there are documentary records there. There are are student records, there are government records, there are also photographic records, and there are all the records of the productions, uh, which includes things like prompt copies and 
programs and press cuttings and all sorts of things like that. It, we also have objects. I mean, it, it's a little bit like so. Some of the school archives are similar. They actually collect a lot more than just what might be you know sort of documentary type archives or, or audio visual archives. But there are some wonderful set models, and actually, this is something that we've been looking and cleaning them up. We have these fabulous. We we actually hold the records of the old Tote Theatre Company, which was the precursor to the Sydney Theatre Company. That. I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with. And uh, there are some fabulous set models that have survived possibly just through sheer luck. Now, we're drawing to the end of the show and it's time for Glam Slam, oh. uh, which is where we take out our diaries and uh, let you know what's coming up for us. But before we do that, I want to ask you, Anna Clark, did you eat tripe? I had a feast but it did not include tripe. But I tell you what it did include. I went to this fantastic meal at the St Albans Writers Festival and they had a menu set from the 1830s as to what people would have been eating then, curated by the amazing Jackie Newling. And we had like an oyster loaf because in those in the olden days um, oysters the, the, the meat of the oyster wasn't needed because they used the uh, oh. shells to burn them kill them and turn them into lime for mortar so the, the oyster flesh itself was very cheap hardly the story down the fish markets today so we had incredible oyster loaf we had pork we had plum pudding with brandied custard we had jellies it was like you know, if it wasn't for the uh, death in childbirth and the uh, working in chains, you'd be tempted to go back to 1836. It doesn't sound particularly vegetarian. No, no, there was not. I don't think there were many vegetarians in uh, in that time. <laughs> uh, what about you, Julia? At NIDA, we've actually got the student productions that are happening at the end of October. So five fantastic productions that are coming and the public are welcome to attend there. So hop onto the NIDA website and have a look at what's coming up. Uh, the other thing that the City of Sydney are running an archives exhibition for 175 years and that'll be at the Sydney Town Hall. That'll be one to watch. I know they've been working very hard. I think it's called 175 Years in 175 Objects. So that'll be fun mm, to go to as wonder well. wonder if Tony Abbott will have a thing to say on the most significant object of Sydney. What, his budgie smugglers? <laughs> <laughs> and look, just, I know you're really keen to know what I'm doing, so I'm going to tell you. Oh, you know, please you. tell yeah, me, totes. please tell me. Uh, I'm going to the Australian National Museum of Education, which is what? at the University of Canberra, and it has... Like textbook Santa Clark, it's got nerd, nerd, <laughs> textbook Tamsin. Uh, <laughs> it's got school desks and slates and teacher records. It's kind of like a wonderland of uh, ye olde schooly daisies. Well, listeners, that brings us to an end of another Glam City. Uh, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to check us out on 2SER.com. That's it for today. Glam out. <laughs>